0: We've read this morning from Colossians chapter 3, which uh, talks about wives and husbands and children and fathers and slaves and masters. And um, it's um, probably not the most inspiring reading that you've had uh, from here, but it's a very important part of what Paul had to say to this congregation. I hope before we go, you'll see how significant it is that Paul is able to give us these particular instructions and in fact might even be inspired. I must confess, I've got a very naughty mind, but I remember the little boy who went home from church and his dad hadn't been at church and wasn't terribly interested. But he said, well, son, what did they tell you today? And he said, oh, stuff. He said, yeah, what, what did they tell you? Oh, Moses and a Pharaoh. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. Uh, and what happened? He said, oh, you wouldn't be interested. He said, yeah, I know. I remember a bit about that. So tell me, what did they tell you today? He said, oh, he was a bit embarrassed. So he said, oh, well, these um, uh, these Hebrews, they got caught between an army and a sea. And so they got on their cell phones and they called up the artillery and they they, they bombed the heck out of the people behind. And and then when they were pretty well got ridden of, they... they Pulled together to some trees and made some pontoons, and they actually got across the sea, and it was all okay. And his father looked at him rather disgusted, and he said, "Father, he said they didn't tell you that." He said, "No," he said, "But if I told you what they told me, that you wouldn't believe it." And uh, so here I've been given the subject of uh, wives be subject, to your husbands, children obey your parents, and you're going to come home and tell that to some other people. And he said, "You wouldn't believe it." today, do you understand it's uh, countercultural, isn't it? And um, so there we are. But it gives me great pleasure to speak about family and work relationships today for uh, several, several reasons, not least because Chris and I often pray for our young families. We know you're under a lot of difficulties. I mean, we always have been as parents, but it's particularly pressured today. And so we often pray. And I think we really need to encourage each other to pray for our young families that Uh, that uh, they'd be encouraged and so forth. Um, And uh, we can't deal with anything in detail today because there's three relationships. Everything here is about relationships. It's not just about doing this or doing that. It's all about relationships. Relationships between a man and a woman in marriage, relationships between parents and children in the family, and the relationship between uh, slaves, in this case, and masters. Uh, Now, we might think, uh, I'm going to deal with this straight away, slavery might seem rather irrelevant to us, but it was a major form of employment in the first century. Uh, And if you said, right, no more slaves, the economy would probably collapse. It wasn't realistic. Nobody would understand if you even tried to do it at the time. And so, uh, and probably in the average congregation, say if this was a first century congregation, uh, probably over half of you might be slaves, that's your life. That's how you'd have uh, lived your life, what you'd understand and so forth, and you'd have good experiences, bad experiences. Some slaves in the first... It wasn't like... We, we think of this uh, 18th and uh, 19th century slavery with chains and whips and, and um, shocking trips in ships and so forth, <clears throat> and it, you can't necessarily equate those two things. So simply to say that slavery was still uh, a demeaned form of life, that's true. Uh, And people had no property rights and lots of other rights, but nonetheless, it was quite common. And as I say, it was uh, so. It was just really. And I'm going to just assume today that it refers to bosses and employees. That's I think that's a fair way to understand the actual passage. I'm not going to go through all of the try to uh, rationalise slavery at all. Not at all. But first of all, I want us to see how Paul is able to tell us these things, Uh, and. um, just to remind us of what we've already read, um, Paul has, um, is uniquely qualified, if you like, to be telling us about these things because of the experience that he's had. Um, he's uh, told us already that uh, God has chosen him. Now, he thought he was already chosen as a Jew. I mean, he was that was who they were, the choose, chosen people. You know, that's what Jews were, the chosen people. And um, so he thought he was chosen, all right, but He found out what chosen meant when he met Christ on the Damascus Road. Plucked out of a fire. It was uh, quite something to be chosen. And then he knew what chosen meant. Jesus had already said many are called but few are chosen, which is a bit like saying many are chosen but few are chosen because the words are almost synonyms. But um, uh, Jesus knew that lots of Jews like Saul of Tarsus had no signs that they were really chosen people even though they were the chosen people. But when he met Christ, he knew he was chosen. Now, it's quite something. uh, Paul knew a strong father. Do you see that? Who chooses, makes decisions. That's interesting, isn't it? And I'm sure then that he he learned that his life was not, uh, that his religion was not his project. That's what he'd made it, hadn't he? He'd gone out and he got letters. He would take me making, arranging a trip. It was his project. And instead he realised that God was a father and that uh, the whole world is a family. The whole world is a family affair. Uh, and so he learned that by, as we had it here, he said, um, uh, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. That's where he's coming from. And he knows that it's not just he now that's a member of that family, uh, but that the whole world, in fact, is uh, in fact a family. And uh, in fact, uh, later on, he talks about, in Ephesians 3, he talks about uh, when he's thought about how God goes about being father of the whole world, he says, I bow my knees. Now, I don't generally kneel when I pray. Sometimes I do, but not often but he bowed his knees. He was deeply affected before the father from whom all familyhood derives. You won't get a family anywhere that does not come from somewhere. Why, why do we get born in families? Because God's father. That's just how it is. Uh, and so the, if you like the whole world is a family affair. I mean, how does he make it? Well, he makes it through a son. So it's family business. And uh, when he calls people to himself, what does he make them? He adopts them as family. It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, So the church here, we call ourselves, like a family. No, we're not like a family. We are the family. In fact, the reason you're born into a family is so you'd be prepared for this one. This is the real family. I mean, this one's going to last. Yours isn't. It won't be male or female, so there won't be mums and dads, I suppose. (laughs) It's interesting, isn't it? This is the family. And born in families is the way you need to be in order to be ready for life. So he knows God is a strong father. That's where he's coming from. And uh, in these days when creation is worshipped, we need to know God's love is greater than the creation. It's just a thought that popped into my funny head recently. Um, You know, the little um, boy uh, talking to his mum and... um, And uh, he said in his little affectionate way, I love you lots, Mum. How much? And he says, so, as as big as this, stretching his little arms out. And Mum says, well, I I love you as big as this house. You you can imagine the conversations, can't you? The little boy's not to be outdone, so he says, oh, oh, I I love you as big as the sky. (laughs) Well, we've got a verse in Psalm, was it about 107 or thereabouts, and it says... Your loving kindness is exalted above the heavens. You think the world's a great place? You're trying to suck your meaning of life out of that? Well, it is a big place. There's a lot to discover and it's a fascinating thing. I love the world. It's great. You know, it's God's created. It's a wonderful place. What's bigger? What exists or what made it? And what is God? God isn't creation. We're not pantheists. God isn't creation. God is above his creation. He's greater than his creation. Now, I just say that because we're going to talk about ordinary life today. And the world is oftentimes too much with us, right? It's in our face, as we say. And I'm asking that we look at the God whose father, who's greater than everything he's made. The little boy, it's already got as big as you could get when he'd opened his hand and said, I love you as big as the sky. But there's something bigger than the sky. It's your God, your Father. And Paul bowed his knees before the Father. That's what you need in order to live. And that's what you do need to live. So he not only knows the Father, he knows Christ and he knows the peace of Christ. You think of Paul and how he, what he thought religion was and it was being right. Oh, I tell you what, spare me from people who want to be right. A pain in the neck, including me, when I'm really trying to be great. Do, do, do you see what I mean? Like the little boy who was heard to pray at his bedside, "Lord, please make all the bad people good, and please make all the good people nice." There's Something terrible about. And that's what Paul was. He was just trying to be good, and then he met, and uh, and then he met Christ. He met Christ, And he'd never, I mean, he'd read it and he knew all about the Messiah, knew all the prophecies, and knew what it was going to, be, going to be like. They had not a clue. And how does Christ talk to him? It's hard for you to kick against my go- goads, my prodding you. Why don't you give it up? What a kind thing to say to a rebel. And the peace of Christ was not a theological construct for Paul. He knew peace. All of that agitation of trying to be good it was all... I ran out of his toenails, just gone. Go. All def, All the ego deflated. He was loved and he now had peace. And it was peace made with the blood of the cross and this hatred that he had for a Christ that got crucified. Like the Jews hated any Messiah that couldn't beat the Romans, uh, you know, hell for leather. He didn't want anything to do with the crucified. now he know Christ has made peace by the blood of his cross and all that stupidity that Paul must have regretted on that day when he met Christ, all just drained out. All his egos drained out. Now all his guilt's drained out. He's got peace with God, just like that, just in a minute. Incredible. And this man is incredibly unqualified to tell us about um, our everyday life. And he also knows the word of Christ. Now, these are just things from last week. And and I think we need to know that because uh, one thing relates to the other. So now we live what we know. This is what we know. And this is what we live. Now, what's bigger, the world or the one that made it? What's going to be in your eyes? Just the world and how you're going to manage? or well, the one who made it and the one who's loved you and revealed himself to you. We need a big God. We need a big God, bigger than the world that's all in our face all the time. And you need that if you're going to be a parent. You need that if you're going to go to work. You need that if you're going to be a husband or wife. So live what you are. I live what you know, I mean, by revelation. Now, compared with that, our culture is feeding off itself. It's devouring itself in the West. There's an interesting article in The Australian this morning, I noticed by John Anderson. I heard him just the other day. John Anderson, former uh, Assistant Prime Minister in Australia. He's talking about how our work crowd are basically devouring us. We're, We're constantly knocking ourselves, saying we've been bad, we've been bad, we've been bad. Do you know what I mean? It's, and if all you've got's the world, do you follow? That's all you've got is the world. And our culture is feeding off itself. It's devouring itself, reacting to the past. Like critical race theory, for example, we've all been bad, you see. Everything that we've done in the past is bad. Now, a lot of what we've done in the past is bad, but if you have that mentality, do you see how it kills you? And we're promoting any ideology that excludes God. That's what happens when you've only got the creation, not the creator, not the father, and not the son who makes peace with him. We need revelation to know how to live as a husband or wife. We need revelation to know how to be a dad or a mum. We need revelation to know how to go to work and how to relate to people there and how to regard our work. Um, God has always been speaking to us not just leaving us to an experiment I love that um, God didn't just plonk uh, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and say go explore well he certainly did give them the opportunity to go and explore but he spoke to them you've never been meant to work out do you know I mean? if you have evidence based psychology by nature of the case you'll be leaving out a lot of the data because the evidence is only what you can see. But in order to have a proper understanding of a human being, you need to be hearing something. You need to be hearing your Creator, because the Creator speaks to us. He doesn't just make us and drop us here and say, right, go find out. He speaks to us. He says, no, don't eat that tree. Uh, everything else there is for you to enjoy, so i actually been commanded to enjoy, as well as commanded not to eat one tree. It's interesting, isn't it? We're told right from the start, and then go... And, and take control and give names to everything. and So he set us on our way with instructions. So uh, we need to revelation in order to know how to actually live. Now, just recognise the dynamic of what Paul tells us. Godly me. Uh, his instructions are brief, very brief. Um, but there's a word that often sometimes somebody says something to you, maybe about your marriage, maybe about your parenting, maybe about your job. And somehow just goes straight to the core and changes your whole course of life. Has that happened to you? I mean, various things that people have said to me that just were the right word. And Paul wasn't just anybody. He was a leading thinker of the day. He'd gone come from one of the main centers of ancient learning in the city in Antioch. There' only three of them, and that was one of them. And uh, he'd gone to the top university in Jerusalem. Uh, he had a very good mind. And you need a very good mind sometimes to work your way out when the gospel has been coming out of Judaism and into a worldwide faith and then it's encountering all kinds of other nations and idolatries. How do you think through all that's going to happen? And I'm very grateful for various thinkers that we can listen to that help us to say, well, here's a way to go. And so his instructions are very brief, but don't ignore them because they're brief, because he's thought out a lot of what you can actually do. In other words, he didn't say abolish slavery. He knew that couldn't happen. It was stupid to even think of it and probably didn't even come to mind. Uh, but he did say what was helpful under the circumstances and they gave everything else an opportunity to change. So his instructions are brief, but they're very deeply effective. So we need to... There's another reason why I'm very eager to speak about this, and that is... That we've heard astounding things about our God and about our Christ—is that true? And sometimes, frankly, they seem unreal. Is that right? And um, that was said to me just this last week. I just uh, wonder sometimes how much I really do believe. And we're looking for a substantiation of what we actually believe. Now, three ways we can go about that. One of them is by digging back into the Scriptures, for example and into history, if you like, go go back to the roots of it all. Another one is your experience. What are you experiencing? And sometimes, unfortunately, we try to generate experiences uh, that aren't real. So I'm not talking about that, but there's a third way, and that's to live. That is to do things, to make choices. And all of this is basically repeating the kinds of things that are spelled out in 1 John, but uh, just think about it. You're wanting substantiation sort of that what you've believed is true. Well try going home and just loving your wife. We've been told to do it. Just, just do it. You might find it's the magic, if I can use that abuse that word a bit, but that actually makes you realize I really am God's. It works. Do, do you follow? There's, there's different ways. You can dig back into the sources or you can uh, look for an experience or something or other, but you can also just do what you're told and you might find in that way, um, that's, for example, chapter 2 of 1 John, saying if you, if you don't love God, well, you're not of God. <laughs> uh, if you don't love your neighbour, sorry, you're not of God. So there's a substantiation that happens when you get in the action. So our faith is not meant to be just stuff you put, put in your head or sing about in church. It's meant to be stuff you do at home. I mean, he's a creator. He's got the whole, he got the whole show going. And uh, God can be known in the practicalities of life. Um, and um, if I can just use this analogy, <laughs> I love this. Uh, if you're, uh, you know, uh, getting back to um, uh, Moses and crossing the Red Sea, you actually realise what they had to do. They picked up the Ark of the Covenant, the priest did, and what do they have to do? Say, abracadabra, and, and the water went apart? No, they had to get their feet wet. And when they got their feet wet, the waters parted. you got that? You might just have to go home and say, I'm going to love. And you might find the waters go. Because in that reading we just had last week, did you notice it says, um, that um, uh, where is it? Hmm. Can't find it quickly. Uh, but it actually talks about God working in us to do something, God working in us, you know. What I mean, it's not just us getting a word and then we do it, but as we do it, God working in us, all He needs is a bit of a Slight nod, you know? I mean, what did Mary do to become pregnant? Let it be so to me, according to your word. And the incarnation happens. The biggest miracle in history. It wasn't hard from Mary's point of view. She, she only had to say yes. And then to go back to the Moses thing, the waters parted. Do you see, this could really be a turning point for you, couldn't it? You've just been trying to get it all in your head by going back to the sources. You might be trying to get it all in your feelings by an experience. What about just some action? And you could actually find yourself, you know, pe- people who served well as a deacon. Where our deacons serves well as a deacon, uh, great gains great confidence in the faith. Why? Because you're doing it, and in the doing of it. God increases your faith. Can you see how it all works? So I hope you can see that. And uh, by nature of the case, I'm not going to be able to spend a long time just talking about these three, because there's three sets of relationships. Um, But first of all, it talks about wives being subject to your husbands. Now, my understanding of this is that basically he's telling us how to love in all circumstances. So if a wife is going to love her husband... How would she love her husband? Well, she would love her husband by understanding what he's been called to do. He's not just the guy that you look at when you get up in the morning. Uh, he's, uh, he's got a dealings with God. Uh, God created Adam and he put him in charge of the world. And then he said he's not up to it. He didn't say that, but he said, it's not good that he be alone. I'll send him a helper. It's not just a helper to help him get out of bed in the morning. It's a, a, and a you know, all the, the things that whatever a wife might choose to do. But um, the husband had been given a task, a vocation. And she was there to help because he was not up to it by himself. He needed the woman so that they could do it together. Now, if a woman doesn't understand that a husband has got a very big calling on his mind and his heart, and if he understands him correctly, on his conscience, if he's wasting his time, if he's not up to anything, if he's not going anywhere, he's like an accident waiting for a place to happen. And a wife won't help by taking over. A wife, if she's subject to a husband, is saying, I believe God has given you a calling and I'm here to help you. If I try and take over from your task... I'm being anti-creational. Do you, do you understand that there's a function here that's very significant? So um, without this, we, if, we don't, if a woman doesn't understand what's actually going on in their, in their relationship as husband and wife, then what she's going to try and do is perhaps suck her meaning for life out of being a competitor with her husband rather than a helper. And it's not going to work. It's not going to work for her as well as not work for the society. It's interesting, isn't it? Now, just to clear the air a little bit, if we read this in Ephesians instead of Colossians, and it seems as though Ephesians might have been written after to fill out Colossians, we don't know, but uh, he doesn't just say, uh, wives, be subject to your husbands. He says, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives to your husbands. In other words, the the wives to your husbands is is a subset of everybody, everybody being subject to one another. You see, that should take some of the steam out of it, shouldn't it? Everybody's subject to everybody. I taught this in Africa and one senior pastor got up and because we we had one session which was them feeding back and so forth. One senior pastor got up, he says, Grant has told us then in a sense, uh, not only are wives to be subject to husbands, but husbands are subject to be wives. You understand that African culture is very different to ours? And Hank Shoemaker told me, don't apply anything. He says, you'll get it wrong. So I'm very glad I didn't. This African pastor got up and he said, well, Grant's told us that it's not only wives subject to husbands, it's husbands are in a way subject to wives. but all subject to one another. So he says, that means because you paid a dowry for your wife, because you paid a price to gain your wife, doesn't mean you can boss her around and around the room. <laughs> the giggles going on. They knew exactly what he meant. Do you see? Same command, works everywhere. It's bigger than the culture. It comes from the Creator. Uh, very interesting. Uh, so, mis- submission is not. Um, being demanded, it's the way it's actually phrased, it's it's something that a wife does, not something a husband demands. There's no equivalent command to the husband to boss his wife, but to love her and not be char- harsh with her. It's interesting, isn't it? Just let it, let the, let it speak to you. Um, so the roles are complementary, not competitive. And men and women are different, not below or above each other. Then the differences are very, very much needed. So no redefinition of gender can change creation. A woman's a woman, a man's a man. And don't let the minor aberrations get the thing wrong. Uh, That's the way God created us. Uh, Let me quote, uh, with some risk perhaps, but some of you might listen to Jordan Peterson. Well, I listened to him this last week. And he says, um, every woman wants to be married to an intelligent and powerful man. And he would insist, if you know he's a clinical psychologist, he's not a Christian. Um, He says, I live as though there is a God, but I don't know if there is one. (laughs) It's interesting. Hello. Anyway, he's saying that on the basis of observation and analysis of statistics. Let me repeat it. Every woman wants to be married to an intelligent and powerful man. Well that's interesting, isn't it? It's a bit countercultural <laughs> at the moment. That's quite interesting. Just let me give you an example. Um, I was in my study at a previous church and a couple in the family a, a, sorry, a couple from the community, not a not a church family, just a couple from the community came to the local pastor for some help. They're in their thirties, marriage wasn't going well, so we sat down and we talked so he did the usual things So just letting them and then you try to get to the trouble spots and say well look when you've got to buy a fridge or something or other who gets the last word about who what were they going to get this size or that size or this brand or that brand um, and they mumbled a bit amongst themselves and then said uh, well probably 50-50 I think that's what he said she jumped in very quickly and she said I always get what I want And there was the problem. Might have been okay in her 20s, but not in her 30s. She wanted a guy to stand up and take some responsibility. Because she always got away, she was in charge of the finances. If anything went wrong, she was it. Do you understand? There's a place for a man to be a man. There's a place for a woman to be a woman. And a woman doesn't help if she tries to be half man. Uh, This 50-50 business is hard. And again, my funny brain says, I don't want to marry half a woman. I want to marry a 100% woman. And I'm sure Chris would like to be married to 100% man. It's nothing about 50-50 about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I hope that helps. Um, just a th- few throwaway lines, really. <clears throat> and then a husband. Love your wife and don't be harsh with her. Um, love is not just doing things for your wife. I think I thought that for a while. If I'd done the things that Chris wanted me to do, then that would be love. I say it with some shame. And then I think uh, I found that it was easier to agree than to really say what I thought. And I thought that agreement was love. And I found that neither of them are. I call it lazy man's love. Agreement, lazy man's love. It's hard to disagree but sometimes you have to. So you're commanded to love, not to agree, not just to do what you're told, so to speak, in the home, but to love. And there's an old Chinese proverb that says, love sees. I said to a woman at uh, another previous church when I was in my early 30s, I said, "Uh, sometimes Chris is unwell and she didn't tell me. I said, I wish she'd tell me, then I could sort of do what's appropriate and she just looked at me as an older woman she said well from a woman's point of view I'd like to think that you knew without being told whoops (laughs) love sees and part of seeing is listening and it's hard to listen it's easy to be harsh because again statistically men are stronger than women men are more aggressive than women again Jordan Peterson, statistics, pure and simple. Statistics. He actually trains women to be business executives uh, with his uh, cultural, with his training as a psychologist, and he has to teach them to have male characteristics in order to get a higher pay. It's actually statistical, and he does it. He's happy to do it if they want to. It's interesting, isn't it? Don't don't be don't be uh, sideswiped by the by the community. Um, we need to learn from Christ. If you're going to love your wife, you're going to need all the love of Christ. Because there in Ephesians it says, love, you, love your wife as Christ. loved the church. Who was he thinking of when he was on the cross? Who was he thinking of when he went walking to the cross? Don't weep for me. Where does that come from? Weep for yourselves. And he's on his way to get crucified. And he's thinking of you and me. That's love. So what's in your head? Um, so we need all of Christ's love, don't we? I, I don't know how many couples uh, married uh, over 100 couples over my career, I guess. And a lot of them in the early days would have been non-Christians. Regularly. I would use Ephesians to, to teach them, and I said to a woman, oftentimes not a Christian, which would you prefer? Would you prefer to be loved because you're beautiful or to be loved so that you can become beautiful? What's the answer, ladies? Second, I have never heard a person choose that they would like to be loved because they're beautiful. They all want to be loved so they're free to become beautiful. Fellows, who are you living with? If you're a married man, who are you living with? What does your wife need from you? She needs you to be loved. You are stronger, but that doesn't give you a right to be harsh. Very simple instruction, but boy, does it go to the heart of things. does, doesn't it? Uh, go on. A family begins not with when the kids are born. A family begins when people get married. I say that because they're one flesh and uh, your own flesh and blood is your own family. Do you see it? That's my biblical reason for saying that. But nonetheless, I think it's very helpful to see a family beginning when people get married and then children come into something. They don't create something. Pity the kid who's the peace child, you know, who's going to be the something that brings the parents together. No, not that. The, the best thing that a married couple can ever do for their kids is to love their spouse. I've heard that from a non-Christian, I think just in a secular, um, you know, cheap magazine. Uh, so it's not just me that thinks that from the Bible, but it's certainly true from the Bible. The chief thing that you can do for, your, for the benefit of your children is to love your spouse. Uh, if you, uh, because, yeah, well, I won't go into it. That's uh, not time for it. But do, do you see that uh, they need to know that there's a stable base for them? I heard about the little child had come home and he just heard that his mate, his uh, parents had broken up. And he looked at his mum and his dad and he looked at his mum and he said, Mum, you won't leave dad, will you? It means a lot to kids to have mum and dad love each other. That's their stability in life, just the same as the father loves the son and the son loves the father. And as strong as that bond is, so strong is your salvation. You and I have grown up in that family. And father and son, are just like that. Because of that, you and I are secure. And families are representing that to children in a very simple but provocative way. Um... So, um, children, obey your parents in everything that's pleasing to the Lord. Uh, Like what C.S. Lewis says, if you don't give children instructions, they're like a train without rails. They're going to get stuck in the bog. You need to give them rails so they can actually get somewhere. And life's confusing, and mostly it's confusing in regard to relationships. Uh, And so they need lots of instruction along the way, and that takes time to find out what the right instructions are, doesn't it? Now, this is all going to come up a bit later, so I don't don't want to go for that. But I do feel sorry when I actually see children manipulating their parents. I almost weep inside and I almost feel pain. I think, mum and dad, you don't know what you're doing to your kids, letting them have what they want. You're actually teaching them, you're not teaching them to live. Um... And those kids need some instruction so they know what up is and what down is and certain things they won't get away with. Otherwise, they're not learning to live. Uh, We do great damage to the children by not expecting something from them. I've said to a national conference amongst uh, teachers uh, and lots of teachers there and lots of parents as well, that my concern is not for the kids of the day but the parents of the day. Are you expecting something? Or you say, oh, you can't do anything these days. Don't say that. You can always do something. You might say, well, I've let the cat out of the bag. It's too late now. You can always do something. It'll have to vary, but you can always do something that might help. Of course, once your children get to a certain age, you're not... Because, see, do you understand this? That obedience is the way of life. A, A Christian is a person who's come to the obedience of faith. And when you teach a child, you're not just telling them how to avoid the mistakes of life, you're teaching them how to live because what you're preparing them for is actually to relate to God, not just you. The authority over a kid's life is God, not you. You're there to represent him. If you misrepresent him, do you understand? They're going to find God problem. So you're training children to know God. And so that means when they get to a certain age, eight, 10, 12, whatever the age is, uh, that you actually need to be preparing them not to be dependent on what you tell them to do but for them to think about it because their ultimate aim is not going on pleasing you but to please God and you've got to help them make that transfer between obedience to you and obedience to God I said that here to our, our young groups right in this room to our young uh, people's group some years ago and I said uh, you're, you're 14 now so you're, you're an adult and you're responsible for your life so how does that make you feel? And one young honest fellow said, "Scary." Well, bit of scare. Be a good thing. They're not just accountable to you; they're accountable to God. You're just getting them ready for that. That's where the way it works. So, so then our children and fathers don't provoke or discourage your children. Just one little simple instruction. Again, you're fairly strong, you've got more muscle than they have and you can be have less time than they've got so you can be quick and you can be pro provoke and just by not encouraging them. But you've got a creation of God in your hands They you need a lot of help and it's going to take your time. Uh, one of my um, fellow workers of one of our sons and we talk every Tuesday night, both of them, uh, said that he had a fellow at work who said, I'm going to give myself to my career first and then I'm going to think about family. And then when it got to the time, he wasn't ready to give himself to his family, let alone his kids being ready for him. It's interesting, isn't it? No, you take the time. You're not just a career person. If you've got kids... You've got a responsibility. They're a unique creation of God. It takes time to work out what a kid is. And, of course, if you're sensible, you listen to the world's leading expert on your children. You know who that is, don't you? world's leading expert on your children is your wife. So you wouldn't want to make a decision about your kids without getting the world's best information on your child. Do you see that? It's all just practical, isn't it? And uh, so fathers, and then slaves, seek the welfare. Uh, sorry, so slaves are to obey their masters. There's three things that it actually says. It's the longest section, interestingly. But notice it says, fear the Lord. And then it says, work heartily for the Lord. And then your inheritance, you're serving the Lord Christ. So what do you need to have in mind when you're going to work? Not your career paths. What you need to have in mind when you go to work is that you do it, you're fearing the Lord. You're responsible to produce something decent in this world because God's watching what you do. And your boss might be a good one, but he might be a bad one. I used to say this to university students uh, many years ago. When you go and work for a multinational corporation, and at that time, multinational corporations were getting in the neck because they were all interested in profits, and, you know, the altruistic students were all going to have the world the right way and so forth. And I said, well, what about Babylon? That would be the ultimate multi-na- multinational, right? Babylon. When people got taken to captivity in Babylon, they were to seek the welfare of the place to which they were sent Because in seeking the welfare of that place, Babylon, you'll seek your own good. Now, if that can be said about Babylon, that can be said about your boss. And he might be pure prophet's man. But you can still learn something there about God wants you to be making something that's good. And if you have to do it for a bad boss, well, maybe that's the way, and maybe you can improve it. So go for it if you can. But do you understand, this is said to slaves who couldn't change it. So it's actually saying work, uh, It's actually saying, fear the Lord. It's actually saying work heartily, not just when they're looking. And then it says you're going to get a reward. So what about your pay? Well, who's going to really pay you? Well, the Lord's going to pay you out. You won't miss out if you're doing the Lord's. Do you, I mean, these are just very simple instructions, and I'm going to stop there because the time's more than gone. But um, uh, slaves and masters. So in conclusion, what can I say? Simply this. We have been given one amazing revelation. We actually know the Maker of the universe. And He knows what the universe is about. And not only that, but He's actually brought you so that you can actually have peace with Him. And He can talk to you kindly. That's really something, isn't it? Now I'm saying just live what you know. And it doesn't matter where you are, you'll find it works. Because God is not unfaithful to what he's given us. God bless you. God bless you very richly. Amen.